This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So, um, actually, so Tom uh, talked about vocabularies of art, uh, which is great because that's entirely what my talk uh, is about today. Um, it's really uh, a discussion of uh, urban formal order. Yesterday, I'm kind of giving some background uh, on um, where, the, where the discipline is, where the culture is uh, with respect to architecture and urban design, and, um, and talked about cities uh, and an Aristotelian understanding of cities as um, the, the locus of human flourishing, uh, at least in the Aristotelian understanding of what, of what a city is, and, and in that tradition of understanding what a city is. And so, um, again, at Notre Dame, I work uh, out of a classical humanist tradition uh, of uh, architecture and urbanism. And I think it's important actually to say, to, to reiterate that, the, that classical, the classical humanist tradition is a tradition. Uh, and that to some extent, traditions are all we have. And so I think that the, uh, the extent to which modernism, uh, and this will come up a little bit in my talk, uh, modernism presented itself as an imperative. Uh, modernist architecture and modernist urbanism presented itself as an imperative. But what I've really come to think is that modernism is like any other historical product of, of, of that nature. It's a tradition. And so um, I think in some ways the question is, uh, if you're thinking, I think it's perfectly possible to practice in a modernist tradition as long as you, but to understand what you're doing truthfully, you have to understand yourself as, as, as working within the tradition, which is a kind of contradictory thing to what modernist um, self-understanding is. So um, really interesting issues that, you know, that, that come up today. And I'm really looking forward to um, conversations today and the rest of the week. So, um, so I want to talk about um, uh, space, anti-space, and junk space. And um, really want to refer to at the beginning the essay that I asked you to read by Stephen Kent Peterson um, uh, called "Space and Anti-Space." And um, one of the actually, how, uh, I won't ask how many of you read it, but how many of you found it uh, easy to read? <laughs> so it's a, uh, it, it is a, uh, is it a, it is an architect, architect theorists essay for architecture theorists. Um, so I'll try to unpack it a little bit uh, for, for lay people. But the, um, one of the key ideas in it, uh, uh, I forget exactly where he says it, but he makes the remark that space is the medium of urban culture. And, and, what he means by space, uh, his understanding of space is what he says is the medium of urban culture. And so he begins, I'm just going to refer to two pages. Um, he begins by uh, noting a crisis that, was, that existed in uh, architecture and urban design, architectural modernism in particular, uh, in the early 60s and early 70s. And, and again, uh, this is something that we read about uh, in the review of Nathan Glazer's book. Uh, Nathan Glazer asked the question, what happened to modernism? Modernism started off. Um, uh, you know, as a cause, right, as a, as a cultural, political, aesthetic cause. And by the middle of the 70s and the 80s and 90s when he was writing, it had just become a style. Uh, and he was lamenting the, the loss of the, the sort of the, the social agenda that had accompanied uh, modernism in its, in its early days. So, so within the architectural community, uh, he talks about a couple of uh, movements that were in reaction to that um, loss of the sense of vigor of, of, um, of modernist architecture and urbanism. And one was the uh, uh, Italian uh, neo-rationalists 
uh, from the mid-70s, and the other were the American postmodernists. Uh, and I, I, won't, I won't go into the details of that, but he says, let's see, he says, and this is, this is the key, sort of, in one way, in some ways, this is the money quote from the essay, I think is the first paragraph uh, at the center of the page. Uh, he says, neither of these positions provides a solution for the complex spatial range which must exist between public requirements on the one hand and private needs on the other. And he's referring, again, he's referring, and, and, and Steve Peterson, I, Steve and I are friends. He's not, he's not an Aristotelian. I should say he's not a conscious Aristotelian. Uh, uh, but he has a good common sense. Uh, he wouldn't articulate it this way, but, but what's implicit in what he's saying is that a city has to provide for a complex variety of needs, both public and private. Uh, in its forms. And so this is what he's referring to. He says, um, he says that the, the other two theories aren't, aren't, aren't doing that because they're not, not dealing well. They don't deal with the issue of either urban space or architectural space in, in, the, in the sense in which he means precisely space. So, so he goes on, he says, uh, no urban image emerges in either of these theories comparable to the sequence of movement through the nameable spaces of a traditional city. And think about any time you've ever spent in a traditional city as a pedestrian, right? Uh, the nameable spaces of a traditional city from the public piazza, this is a hierarchy, this is a declension from the most public to the most private. From uh, the public piazza along the avenue, down the street, into the semi-public courtyard, through the communal foyer, up the stairs, and into a private room. He says, this is an elaborate sequence of passage through a rich typology of spaces for which there is a vocabulary of discrete terms. The complex linking of these provides an accommodation of the conflicting public and private domains. I don't know if I'd even say conflicting, but just it, 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 you know, a differentiation between public and private domains. Offering a place for the unpredictable and a location for intermediate transactions. So um, that's, uh, that's I, want, I wanted to add his gloss on this idea that space is the medium of urban culture because he's saying that the kind of culture that we've made today, which is not spatial, which is anti-spatial in, in a way that I'll describe, uh, this is what this is sort of central to what he what he means. This sequence of spaces that was possible uh, that existed uh, in traditional cities up until the middle of the 20th century. So so I want to start out just by talking again. Space is a thing, um, and space is an urban thing. So. As a basic perceptual thing, this is the, uh, the idea, because I'm going to talk about foreground buildings and background buildings, and I'm going to talk about space as figural, space as, as, as having form. Um, and so the basic conceptual background, and it's, you know, it's fairly primitive. I mean, I, it's, it's been a long time since I took perceptual psychology. Um, but you've all seen this diagram, a figure ground diagram, which is like a 50% figure ground diagram. So that's uh, the idea is that any, any perception, uh, our perception of objects or of things uh, as figures takes place necessarily against, it requires a background in order to distinguish them as figures. So in this instance, if you look at the white uh, in the image as the figure, right, then, then what, you, what you're looking at is the white and everything else is background and you don't really see it. If you're looking at the black as figure, which are, appear to be two faces in profile, you don't focus, you don't see the white. And so there's this kind of 50% reversal uh, in this. You, depending on how you look at it, you can see, see either one. But you can't really look at both of them and see them both simultaneously. Uh, you have to, that's, a, that's a more intellectual uh, than a perceptual 
um, exercise to, to, to recognize that. But the idea behind uh, space and anti-space uh, is that space is figural. It's a figural void. Uh, and and, and he, what he's saying is that this was actually, there's a history to the development of space in cities, uh, and it, but, but from the time that, that really there began to be uh, complex cities, cities have been spatial environments. Uh, and I'm gonna go through a number of types. Steve Peterson uh, uh, named some of them. Um, these types, they didn't all emerge at once. The types have histories. So when I teach this course uh, in urbanism, you know, for, for beginning architecture students. Um, uh, I talk first, I sh I, it's, it's, in some ways it's showing the same slides twice. I show them first as types, and then I, and then I show them as history, right? Because the types have a history of, of development. I'm not gonna give you the history, I'm just gonna show you the types today. Um, but anyway, but that's, that's the notion. And, and the thing about, about anti-space um, is that, that I'll just mention at the beginning because it's important to understand. Um, Peterson has a definite argument in favor of space uh, as figural and as, as being essential to traditional um, uh, human uh, cities, uh, well, traditional cities, um, pre-modern cities, right, were, were spatial in, in character. And he thinks that that's good, but it's not that anti-space is bad, and I'll explain why. It's that space and anti-space, it's not space is good, anti-space is bad. It's that space is one condition and anti-space is its opposite. Right, so that's 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 something to bear in mind. Okay, so the idea of space and anti-space. So um, on the left uh, is an image of the um, uh, Uffizi Piazza in Florence. Uh, it's it's a it's a if you if you look at it and think of it as a space, it's figural. Uh, it's a rectangular prism, uh, but it's void, right? And the buildings are the background to it. The buildings shape that spatial void. Uh, on the right uh, is Le Corbusier's um, uh, Unité d'Habitation in Marseille, uh, a big apartment building um, from the late 40s or early 50s. Um, and conceptually, uh, and this is an example actually of a building as figure, not, you know, not the space as figure, but the building as figure, and the spatial environment in which it exists is actually anti-spatial, right? Because it's, it's anti-space has no shape, right? It's, it's, like, it's like ocean to a fish. Uh, and the fish is the solid, right? And so when you're, but, but, but in cities, the, the figure is the space, the figure is the void. And so, we'll, so, so you can imagine here in the diagram, uh, so the spatial conditions uh, are shown in the, you know, in, in the arrow, um, a, a plan view and a, a, a perspective, a photograph of the um, Uffizi Piazza. And then the anti-spatial condition uh, is the Unité d'Habitation uh, as, a, as a figural solid, uh, as indicated by the arrows. So, um, so basic idea, so maybe I've mentioned, anyway, spa space can be imagined as carved out of a solid mass, a subtraction of solid material. Space is always defined by some kind of vertical edge. Something cannot be classified, should not be classified as space if it is not spatial. And so one of the things that I really have to work hard and rarely succeed, or succeed too rarely, uh, is in getting my students to not employ the term open space, <laughs> which is really hard, right? Because that's, that's kind of our default cultural sensibility, is to think of space as the final frontier, right? The void 
the formless void in which you know the Starship Enterprise you know, goes through and, and and encounters other spaceships and galaxies, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so anti-space is undefined area. Anti-space is the context for figural solids. Anti-space can be imagined as empty and infinite to which material objects are added. Anti-space is not defined, and therefore anti-space is not spatial. Space is the medium of public life in traditional cities. The piazza, the square, the street, the courtyard. Um, um, so, uh, all, all of us Aristotelian Thomas will love this by analogy. A condition cannot be both spatial and anti-spatial at the same time and in the same respect. Um, you can imagine space and anti-space as existing along a continuum, right? There, there are certainly ambiguous real conditions that are not purely spatial, not purely anti-spatial, but it always tends toward one, you know, one or the other, and it can't ever be both simultaneously. And then there's always a reciprocal relationship between space and the solids that define it. Space cannot exist without the edges that define it and vice versa. So um, in the context of traditional and modern notions of urbanism, traditional urbanism is a spatial condition and even the object buildings, again, which we'll, I'll show some examples, even object buildings in a traditional city are set within a defined urban space. In contrast, modernist urbanism, uh, which Peterson regards as, a, as an oxymoron, but which again is the, the well, modernist urbanism and modern, modern space. I mean, one of the, one of the, one of the claims of, of um, architectural um, and urban modernists is that, uh, is that they're creating a new spatial condition that they define as modernist space, whether architectural or whether urban. Um, but Peterson's point is, well, is that that's a confusing thing. We're using the same term, space, to describe two opposite conditions, which is the, the, the reason behind, he, the reason why he wrote this essay. Um, so, uh, but the, the point is, is that so-called modernist urbanism is a primarily anti-spatial condition. Uh, modernism, uh, and the modern urban condition are object buildings set within an anti-spatial or spatially undefined condition. So that the images that you see on the lower left are urban spatial conditions and the, the um, image that you, images that you see on the right uh, are um, modernist anti-spatial uh, urban and building conditions. So um, let's just show some examples of what I mean by a space spaces and, and anti-spatial conditions because they, they mostly exist in cities but they also exist uh, uh, in traditional uh, garden design um, and uh, and again that, that's a history the, the, the history of, of garden design in the West particularly in in France and in Italy and maybe in different order in Italy and in France uh, uh, turns out to be very influential for the subsequent design of cities um, Pierre L'Enfant who did the um, the, um, the plan of Washington, D.C., um, which is um, at about the same, exact same scale uh, as Versailles, the gardens in Versailles. Uh, Pierre L'Enfant's father was a court painter in Versailles. Uh, and so when George Washington asked him to design a plan for the capital, he did what he knew. And, uh, and that's how 
and, and Washington DC is unique in the United States for that reason, but that, that was the direct influence of, of this French tradition of landscape. Anyway, so space and building, so, so space, between space, um, there is a reciprocity between buildings and or landscape that define its edges. So this is a centralized space, and I'll give it a proper name later, but I'll just call it a centralized space. Like two kinds of spaces are centralized spaces and linear spaces. There's more than that, but I'm, I'm simplifying it a lot for today. Centralized spaces and linear spaces in the city. And this is a centralized space that's defined by buildings, right? So that the void in it, the, no, I'll come back to it. Um, this is a linear space. It's the same space, but it's layered. Uh, this is a linear space defined by um, buildings, uh, by, by buildings and by vegetation, right? That the, both the buildings and the trees um, uh, uh, help to create um, this linear space. And then this is a linear space that is uh, defined entirely by, by vegetation. Um, there are, again, so it's not that space and anti-space, one's good, the other's bad, it's that, it's that um, one is one thing and the other is its opposite. So there are famous buildings in anti-space that are both well-known traditional buildings and well-known modernist buildings. So on the left is the Corbusier's um, Villa Rotunda, on the right is, I'm sorry, on the left is Palladio's Villa Rotunda, uh, on the right is the Corbusier's uh, Villa Savoy. Um, and then uh, this, this is anti-space as a modernist urban ideal. This is Le Corbusier's Plan Voisin for Paris from 1922, which is, uh, I think, as close as, as close an iconic image of modernist urbanism um, that we have. And, uh, you know, if, if just to, I, actually, I don't have a, I can't. Um, so um, this, is, this is in Paris, right? And so this is, this is the right bank of Paris, if you look at the lower corner, you see the Pont Neuf, uh, and you see, you know, you cross the bridge and you can see Versailles in the sort of the bottom center and that whole axis that runs down the Champs-Élysées uh, runs off the picture. So this is what Le Corbusier was proposing to do uh, to Paris as a, as a modernist ideological intervention. Architects like to use the word intervention a lot. Um, so um, um, as I said, objects placed in an anti-spatial condition are not bad, uh, but they are not urban. Right, so on the left uh, is a is a, a well-known uh, traditional building, uh, the, the uh, Basilica Palladiana in Vicenza, um, that forms one side of a of a plaza uh, and helps to form a spatial condition. On the right uh, is a Renaissance centralized church plan from the early 16th century, uh, Santa Maria della Consolazione, um, which exists outside the walls of Todi in an anti-spatial condition. A beautiful building in a beautiful landscape. Again, uh, not one good, one bad. It's that um, they are um, opposites. So we've seen this uh, space. So, so this is a centralized space. This is a linear space. Uh, I'll go more. This is a linear space. Uh, this is a linear space uh, at grade level. Um, these are linear spaces uh, in um, um, in Italy. On the left, the Villa Lante, no, the Villa Deste, and on the right, um, at Versailles. And these are all anti-spatial images, um, two of them uh, uh, from the early 16th century and, and the one on the lower left by Le Corbusier in the 20th century. Um, so Le Corbusier's Plan Voisin, the image at the top, and I'll be referring to that um, throughout, um, uh, sort of preceded his um, later uh, um, kind of utopian um, book and study uh, or, or utopian polemic 
uh, for what for La Ville Radius, what he called the radiant city. Um, but the ideal, uh, the formal ideal of the modernist city was the idea of towers in a park, right? So that it was it was at once it was at once nature romantic and high tech. Um, that it that it was going to embrace um, uh, modern technology and make the buildings as objects, but it was going to be set in a pristine kind of kind of landscape. Um, um, so it's I mean it's 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 a very Enlightenment uh, kind of kind of um, project. So um, the uh, there are really great uh, instances of anti-spatial conditions in uh, Anglo-American um, uh, traditions of garden design. Um, so the English Romantic landscape tradition. This is Stourhead uh, in UK, uh, which you know, which as you can see is anti-spatial. This is that same image of photograph. It's an anti-spatial condition. Uh, these are views across the, the, the landscape, um, same images. Um, this is actually, uh, if any of you know, uh, St. Mary of the Lake Seminary in, in Lundeline. Um, it's, it's really remarkable for the combination of, of a classical um, uh, campus plan, uh, which is on the left, uh, and the, combined with this English Romantic landscape sensibility, uh, which you can see is sort of a road that winds around the lake and you can see the vantage points of, of what it's like to look across the landscape and see, see the isolated objects in it. Um, so a little kind of summary um, of uh, conditions of space and anti-space. That space is perceived. It is almost visible. It's tangible. It's ordered. It's formed. It's discontinuous. It is static. To flexing, you know, it can, it's got a little wiggle room in it, it can be sequential. It's specific, it's man made, it's particular, it's variable, and it's multiple. Um, uh, in contrast, uh, uh, anti space is conceived, it's invisible, it's not something you notice, it's not something you're aware of as anti space. It's random, it's unformed, it's continuous, it is flowing to motion. I'm, I'm sure any of you who've read any. Um, uh, accounts of uh, iconic uh, early modernist uh, pavilions and buildings, Frank Lloyd Wright, Mies van der Rohe, um, they gush about flowing space. Well, this is what they're talking about. Uh, continuous flowing to motion uh, anti-space is how, how Peterson would characterize it. It's general, it's natural, it's universal, it's uniform, and it's singular. So, so Basic ideas, um, space and anti-space. Uh, uh, traditional uh, architecture, and urbanism, because traditional urbanism is spatial, but of interest is that the buildings in traditional cities, uh, the interior of the buildings, the rooms are also spatial. And so in the same way that, the, that modernist space, modernist urban space is free-flowing, uh, there's a correspondence with the buildings that modernist architects create. Uh, so the internal conditions uh, of modernist buildings are generally, uh, generally anti-spatial as well. There are, there are constructional reasons for, for both of those conditions. I can't go into them here. We can talk about it later if you want. But they're, they're not necessities. But one, one method of construction tends to result in spatial conditions. The other method of construction tends to result in anti-spatial conditions. Um, so I want to talk now, though, about specific cities with this, this general idea of space uh, urban space in the background. Um, and and because again, the topic is urban formal, traditional urban formal order. 
Um, and I mentioned yesterday um, that I thought that there were two basic characteristics of, of traditional urban form. And this is, this is an anthropological observation. This isn't just a European, Western European, or, you know, it's not unique to, to Western Europe, um, but is a pretty common human condition for reasons that I'll, uh, I'll explain. Um, but one is um, a, um, one is, one is um, a mix of uses within pedestrian proximity. And this is a really wonderful little diagram by Leon Creer um, that draws a half mile diameter circle around uh, the historic centers of some, uh, around the, the historic centers of some existing European cities, right? And so I, I'll have you look uh, particularly, I'm sure you're most familiar with uh, the three at the bottom, Venice and Amsterdam and Florence. And you get, you look at that, uh, and that, that circle uh, to scale, these are all at the same scale, um, the, the 10 minutes, the half mile diameter represents the distance that a human being can walk comfortably in about 10 minutes. And so it means that, and, and, it, and as a circle, it constitutes about 125, 126 acres. Uh, uh, as a square, it's 160 acres, which is a quarter of a square mile. Um, it's a half mile by half mile. Um, so uh, the point being, again, that from edge to edge, it's a 10-minute walk, and from center to edge, it's a five-minute walk. And you have within it this mix of uses. And, uh, and, and what the inference that Creer draws, and I think it's a correct inference, um, is that uh, these, these are that way because of our nature as walking beings, as walking animals, because these, this is how human beings made human settlements prior to the advent of mechanized transportation. Um, and there were other sort of markers that, you know, the distances between cities that would be established on the basis of how far you could walk in a day from one city to another, or how, how long it would take you to ride, you know, a horse from one city to another. But internal to the cities, right, the, the mix of uses within pedestrian proximity typically fall um, within that, um, that kind of, of geometry. Um, the other characteristic, right, um, is that there's, they're characterized by a mix of uses within the pedestrian proximity. So that one of these places standing alone might be a village or a town. Um, uh, in a big city, they would constitute a neighborhood. And so Creer came up with this really fantastic diagram um, uh, likening a city neighborhood at, at about the scale of the, you know, the half mile precinct that we were talking about, uh, likening it to a pizza, right? And he says that um, a, uh, an urban neighborhood uh, is like a slice of pizza. It contains all of the same ingredients as the rest of the city. Um, there might be a few variations. You might, you might get your pizza with half of it, you know, pepperoni and the other half mushrooms or something, but it, it shares something, but there's some differentiation. But the point is, is that generally essential things are shared. And then you contrast it with uh, post-World War II human settlements, which zone things according to function. And he says, it's like uh, putting the crust over here and the sauce over there, and the cheese over there, and the pepperoni over there, right? And calling it a pizza, but it's not a pizza, right? Because it doesn't have the form of a pizza, it doesn't. Um, so um, it's, a, it's a very apt analogy, I think. So uh, I wanna talk about this, I mentioned this street and block reciprocity uh, with respect to uh, space. It can't be that late. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, and, and so, again, uh, another little diagram showing uh, on the left uh, singular buildings in the public realm, on the right sort of uh, 
blocks uh, of, of what, what I'll call background buildings. And uh, one is the res publica, the other is the res economica, and you put them together and you get the city. Um, so um, in, you know, with respect to the, the private realm of uh, the vertical edges of blocks define streets and squares as public space. Uh, so I want to go through a set of, of uh, urban typologies and give some names to urban spaces. And again, I've, I've simplified this a great deal, but I wanna, we're going to look at urban spatial types. Um, there are centralized spaces and linear spaces. There, there, there's more than that. There's internal, there's semi-public spaces, all kinds of things. But I, wanna, I just want to focus on some of the main centralized and linear spaces of traditional uh, urban settlements. So um, urban spatial types, the plaza, hard surface, figural space, centralized space, a place where people gather, uh, clockwise from top left, um, Siena, Bruges, uh, Todi, Italy, Hilltown, and Italy, Pienza in Italy. Um, the, planted the, 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 the planted analog, the square, right? So the, the plaza is older than the square. Um, the square is a, really a 16th century invention uh, it was most popular um, in Northern Europe and England. It migrated from England to the United States so that the Anglo-American tradition is much more the tradition of squares than plazas, except in the Southwest and the South um, um, in, in, uh, in areas that were settled by the Spaniards, uh, in which there's a, a plaza mayor. Um, but the square is a planted centralized um, space, uh, clockwise from top left, Paris, London, Boston, uh, New Orleans. Um, Linear types, uh, again, this is, this is hierarchical. And generally speaking, the centralized, centralized spaces are more important than the linear spaces. And among the linear spaces, uh, the avenue and the boulevard are more important than the street. The street is the most ubiquitous, right? They're, most space in cities are streets. So um, urban spatial types, the avenue, um, uh, more traffic, more commerce, um, bigger scale, um, so clockwise from top left, Paris, Chicago, um, Skinny Atlas, New York, Northampton, Massachusetts. The um, avenues in small towns tend to be state roads that run into the town. It slows down as you go in. It turns in you know, from a, um, you know, a, a two lane, 55 mile an hour uh, road. As you, as you sequence into town, it slows down to about 25 miles an hour through the center of town. So it becomes the main street, basically, but it, typologically it's an avenue. Um, the boulevard. Um, which is uh, like an avenue, except it tends to be more residential and it's characterized by a planted median. So the boulevard is analogous to the square. The avenue is analogous to the, um, to the plaza. Um, this is, and, and they're not always named correctly. And I just can't, this is Commonwealth Avenue in, uh, in Boston, which is uh, possibly the best boulevard in the country. It's certainly one of them. Um, and then it also occurs at the scale of small towns. This is in Cooperstown, New York. It's a quarter mile. Um, Boulevard on a residential street that's ended at, terminated at both ends by war monuments. Um, so it, it can happen at scales, you know, a big city and small town. Um, the street is the most ubiquitous urban spatial type. Uh, clockwise uh, from upper left uh, is Bruges, um, Charleston, South Carolina, Nantucket, and Chicago. Um, and streets, uh, streets are the oldest urban space and they, uh, obviously they antedate automobiles. And then uh, the, the final one that I want to mention is the alley or the lane. Uh, top, top left is London, right Boston, bottom left Chicago, uh, which is essentially a service thing. It, allow, it allows you to park. It allows deliveries to be made. It, it's the place where you can put utilities. Uh, it allows 
uh, in the modern era, it, 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 it helps accommodate traffic because when you access your off-street parking via the alley, you don't have curb cuts uh, on the street and you can park cars on the street, provide an extra level of protection and decreases the amount of surface parking that might be required uh, in a city, which is surface parking is a solvent of urbanism because surface parking takes up private land that should be, should be occupied by buildings that are defining the spatial conditions uh, of the street. Um, so those are, the, those, um, those are the spatial types. I want to talk about building types. Uh, the public realm of civic buildings, uh, um, what I'm, I'm going to call urban foreground buildings, which tend, tend to be religious buildings, civic buildings, and monuments. And they're foreground because they're made to be seen. I'm going to talk about background buildings in a minute. Background buildings, they're called background buildings not because they shouldn't be seen, not because they shouldn't be handsome. Uh, they're called background buildings because their foremost urban purpose is to shape public space. Um, and so they're not meant to be seen. I think that the, the but they, they, they should be worth looking at, but they're not meant to be seen. So that the, the idea is that you should be walking, you know, if you're walking down the street, with a friend who's not an architect and you're not being obnoxious as an architect yourself, uh, you wouldn't notice the background building, right? But if you're walking down the street with a friend who's an architect, you know, you'd be stopping and you'd be looking at the, at the background buildings and saying, oh, this is a good one, this is not so good one. But, um, but it's really, it's a kind of a professional thing to notice background buildings, but, uh, but good architects care about them. Anyway, so, but these are the foreground buildings. Um, and so, yeah, the urban buildings. So, so there are foreground buildings. Uh, these are uh, European examples. They tend to be freestanding. They're not always. I'll talk about that. But so uh, clockwise from top left, uh, um, um, Santa Croce in, um, uh, in Florence, uh, the Opera House in Paris, the, the Duomo, the Cathedral in Florence, and a statue of uh, Jan van Eyck in Bruges. Um, uh, American exa examples of foreground buildings and objects. Uh, top left is um, the Market Hall in Charleston, uh, a church uh, in Chicago, a post office in Nantucket, and a monument uh, in Cooperstown, New York. Um, uh, foreground buildings uh, tend to be located in places that uh, magnify the importance of both the building and the space, right? And so you locate a foreground building on a plaza or a square, and when you do that, it makes the building, if you locate a church on a square or a church on a plaza, it makes the plaza more important and it makes the church more there's this reciprocity that exists. Another way to emphasize the importance of, of, a, of a foreground building is for it to terminate a vista, right? And so this, these are both examples of what happens. Um, the, on the left is a, a, an Episcopal church in Charleston, South Carolina that, that terminates the vista of the street. You actually have to go around it. Um, um, uh, and then on the right, this is actually an internal block. It's another Episcopal church in, uh, in uh, Cooperstown, where you go through uh, an arch and it's got it's got the Jesuit inscription. I know my Latin. Anyway, uh, but you you go through and uh, and the you pass through this alley of trees and on the left and the right is the cemetery uh, into the church. It's really a wonderful, wonderful um, urban composition. Uh, foreground buildings fronting squares. Um, the uh, town hall in Antwerp in the lower right. Uh, Trinity Church in Boston in the left. Um, the old um, city hall in Boston. On the, uh, I'm sorry, Trinity Church on the upper right, uh, Old City Hall in Boston on the left. Um, and then they can be, uh, you know, of all kinds. They can be um, 
uh, from the lower left is, you know, is the State House in Boston. Uh, there's an elementary school in Boston on the upper left, um, a baseball park, Scheib Park in Philadelphia on the upper right, um, when they really cared about baseball parks uh, as urban things. Uh, and on the lower right, um, the Boston Public Library. Um, so um, those are foreground buildings, urban foreground buildings. These are urban background buildings, right? And again, this reciprocity between the blocks and the buildings and the spaces that they define. Uh, but they're the background buildings. So um, here are examples, uh, you know, of uh, often um, the background buildings are mixed use, particularly if they front an avenue uh, or, a, or a boulevard, most often an avenue or a, or a plaza, um, that often you have, uh, um, you have streets that are more residential. Uh, and, so, and I'll talk about this more tomorrow. Um, there's a premise about, no, I'll talk about it tomorrow, but um, the, they're building types that are obviously meant for something, but in traditional urban settings, um, buildings are not restricted in their use generally. So that uh, a building may be designed as a house and clearly as a type, it's a house. But over its lifetime, it may be used for half a dozen different things um, if it's well built and, and if it's a good urban condition. So, but these are all a type of building uh, that's common where you have, uh, there, it's a building designed as a mixed use building. It has retail at the grade and on, on the floors above, it has residences or offices of some sort. Um, so these are all examples of, of urban anti, I'm sorry, urban background building. Again, uh, I'm asking, I can show you these same slides and say, uh, let's look at the spaces, but I'm showing you these slides and saying, let's look at the buildings, right? Because I'm, I'm asking you to look at the background buildings um, uh, and how they perform. So these are background buildings in small towns. Again, mixed use with retail below and apartments or offices above. Um, these are background buildings on residential streets um, uh, that are single family houses. Um, these are background buildings on residential streets that are multifamily housing. Um, so the building on the left uh, is two units. The building on the upper right uh, is three units on the right and two units uh, uh, buildings adjacent to it. The building on the corner is 12 units, uh, uh, 12 apartments. These all exist within 200 feet of each other. Um, they, so you get on urban streets, uh, you get this mix of uh, building types uh, that, that they're a similar scale. They provide for a lot of, a lot of um, different uh, density and there's a logic to why they're, they're located where they are. Um, but the critical thing, obviously you can't do this in the suburbs because zoning doesn't permit it, but also because people are antsy about what it does to your property values. But, um, but the, the reality is, is that in a, good, uh, in a good urban condition, the property value is a function of the quality of the street. It's a function of the quality of the urban spatial environment. So, um, okay, let's see, where am I now? Uh, space, anti-space, building, landscape, reciprocity. I've, I've got to get to, um, I've got 15 minutes. I've got to get to um, junk space. Um, so, yeah, so con the uh, context and implication of streets, blocks, and lots. So space and anti-space um, have to do with this building and landscape reciprocity. So, um, oh, I know. I, I want to show sort of the implications, right, of this way of thinking about space and buildings, right, in a traditional urban context. And what you get then, the characteristics of good contemporary American traditional towns and neighborhoods um, and the kind of density that you get. And you know, every once in a while, the subject comes up when I'm talking uh, about sort of this Aristotelian idea of a of a city and and the urban form that it takes. And 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 I'm asked, is that even possible today? How can can we do this today? And uh, does it exist anywhere? And and actually, the fact is that any place built before 1945 had that form. 
it exists everywhere uh, in either good condition or bad condition. Now it's been, uh, we haven't been adding to it. We've been adding a whole lot of other stuff to it, but uh, that's, that's, another, that's another topic is sort of um, the, the impediments to just doing traditional um, architecture and urbanism, but that's not for today. So I wanna talk about some characteristics of good contemporary American traditional towns and neighborhoods, contemporary and American, right? So a good town or neighborhood has a discernible center, right? So on the left is uh, Jackson Square in New Orleans. On the right is Lincoln Avenue in Mr. Bessel's neighborhood in Chicago. Um, so one's a, you know, one's a square, others an avenue, but it's the center of the neighborhood. A good town or neighborhood is pedestrian friendly on its commercial streets, wide sidewalks, um, uh, curbside parking to protect uh, pedestrians from traffic, um, trees planted in grates, um, places to sit, attractive storefronts. A good town or neighborhood is pedestrian friendly on its residential streets. Um, same thing. Now this, well, actually on the left is, 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 a, is, a, is a residential street in Chicago, on the right is a residential street in Skinny Atlas, New York. Um, the neighborhood in Chicago has a density of about 28,000 people per square mile. The, the neighborhood in, in uh, Skinny Atlas probably has a density of, I don't know, five to 7,000 people per square mile. Very similar form, right, of the street, shape of the street, um, and things they have in common, right? They have, adjacent to the curb, they have planter strips. Um, remember on the, on the commercial street, the, the trees were in grates, uh, in the residential streets, the trees are in planter strips, uh, and uh, and then there's a sidewalk, and the sidewalk actually comes up to the edge of the property line, right? So that that the area from the inside of the sidewalk, the 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 the, the building side of the sidewalk, to across the street to the building side, uh, uh, to the sidewalk that's on the building side of the, the building across the street, that is the right of way, that's the public realm, and that's what you should think about if you ever if you ever do urban design. Um, you should recognize that the right-of-way and the street design, the street design takes place in the public realm. It's not just curb to curb. It's, it's, it's public right-of-way and everything else is private. So this is that public-private distinction that, that makes up cities. So a good town or neighborhood has a variety of dwelling types. It has detached single-family houses. All of these, incidentally, they're, the, I mean, all these building types are urban, right? In the sense that they, they, they occupy a lot that faces the street that, uh, that is accessed from um, the street or a sidewalk um, in, front of, in front of the house. Um, and uh, yeah, so they're, you know, they're, I mean, they're not, they're not, they're not suburban single family houses, they're, they're urban single family houses. So a good town or neighborhood has a variety of dwelling types, row houses on the left, two flats and three flats on the right, um, six unit apartments, um, buildings on the left, 12 unit apartment building on the right, um, uh, it has um, apartments over, sh over shops. Um, uh, it has um, accessory dwelling units, um, which are becoming, that's kind of a new thing. Uh, accessory dwelling units are becoming more legal um, than they've been in a long time, given the housing crisis that we've had. It's not enough, but it's a, it's a start. Um, uh, a good town or neighborhood has stores and offices located at or near its center. A good town or neighborhood has uh, children uh, and elementary school and parks and playgrounds to which they can walk. It's a whole other thing, right? Because people assume that, you know, a lot, a lot of young people, young people, like to live in cities uh, until they have children. Uh, and then the story is, well, you know, then they're going to move out to the suburbs. A lot of people do. Um, I'll tell you, I mean, you make some, I want to say you, 
having raised three kids uh, in, in a city, uh, I guess you could say you make sacrifices, but it's, I mean, you make sacrifices when you're a parent, but it didn't feel like it. It feels, actually what it felt like was it was kind of the best decision that my wife and I ever made uh, was to raise our kids uh, in, in the Chicago neighborhood that we lived in. Obviously, there's a, there's a, um, a premium that, uh, responsibility for the safety of children, but it's, it's not necessarily the case that children are safer in the suburbs than they are in the city. A good town or neighborhood has small blocks, small lots, and a network of three streets. I, I really, I've said this to people for a long time. I, I just, more and more I think that this is a really critical issue uh, because almost all development today takes place on big blocks that consolidate lots, uh, and sometimes they'll close off streets, and it's just terrible. Um, a good town or neighborhood places its buildings near the front of their lots to give spatial definition to streets. A good town or neighborhood utilizes its streets for parking and parks from alleys where possible. A good town or neighborhood reserves prominent sites for civic and religious buildings. And if I were like Aristotle, I'd say, oh, wait, that's the first one. That, that's the first thing I should have said. They reserve prominent sites for civic and religious buildings. Um, and then uh, I just want to give you an idea of the urban density um, that, that follows from certain street sections. And on the top uh, is actually, this is, this, this is a, an image that came out of a, urban design studio um, about three or four years ago in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But the, uh, the one on the top uh, uh, is the current condition of an urban neighborhood that had a network of three streets and they cul-de-sac it. They wanted to get more people to come back and live in the city by making it more like a suburb. And so, um, so all the houses are set back, they're, they're suburban. Um, you know, um, suburban house types. Uh, but they're detached single family houses, wider lots, they're one to two stories, and you get about 2,800 people per square mile um, in, that, in that, that's the density in that part of the city. Um, on, in the center is a Chicago railroad suburb street um, that actually has the, the formal structure of a town, it's, it's organized around a rail stop. Um, that has, um, 7,000 people per square mile, uh, and that's within three blocks of, of the train station that, that takes them to downtown Chicago. And then you have the street below, which is the street that I lived on, um, uh, which is 28,000 people per square mile. But what's of interest to me is the similarity in the street section uh, between the, the railroad suburb and the Chicago neighborhood, right? Because it's basically, basically the same. If you even measured from the fronts of the buildings across the street, uh, they both have wide planter strips. Obviously, the um, actually the what's of interest in the suburb, right, is that there's no cars parked on the street, right, because the density is low and all the parking is behind. Um, and in Chicago, on, on the street below, every every uh, linear foot, right, is is occupied uh, by by cars. But so the the reason the density is the, the height of the buildings are the same, basically, and the reason that the densities are different is because uh, the, the lots in Chicago are half the size of the lots in LaGrange in the suburb, and the buildings are mostly two unit buildings. So you're getting four people on the same, four units on the same amount of land. Um, okay, so I want to talk now about um, sort of what's happened uh, spatially uh, in the culture since, uh, since um, the Second World War. And again, referring to the Plan Voisin as the, as the modernist icon. 
Uh, and again, this is an idea. If you know, if you read my review of uh, Nathan Glazer's book, uh, this is this is my um, the inference that I draw there is that modernism uh, is is misunderstood. That modernism that we think it's a present condition, but modernism is actually a transitional uh, thing, and it lasted about eighty years, and we're now in a, a, a hypermodern, postmodern uh, condition. Um, so this uh, so the Plan Voisin stands there as a, as an icon. Of, of the modernist uh, ambition. And what we're seeing on the right is, is the kind of thing that it's, that it's tending toward. So um, um, on the right is the Chicago Loop perimeter, which is an anti-spatial condition that is devolving to junk space. In Houston, uh, we see the downtown perimeter with an in an anti-spatial condition that is devolving toward junk space. Uh, the contemporary suburban sprawl uh, aerial is an anti-spatial condition. I'm not gonna call it uh, junk space. Uh, in, in, the, in the houses and the streets. And um, uh, it could be an interesting conversation about the future of the suburbs. Um, but contemporary, uh, but, but the, the, the office park and shopping um, zones uh, in uh, uh, contemporary suburbs um, are anti-spatial uh, and devolving toward junk space. Um, so we're devolving from modernism to a kind of hyper-modernist, post-modernist urbanism. Uh, in which uh, I want to argue that this condition of the contemporary city, especially as it manifests itself as in global cities, uh, is that the formal order, again, if you think about what I've described as the formal order of traditional cities and the hierarchy of spaces and the nature of the, of the foreground buildings and the kinds of buildings that are foreground buildings, right? The churches, the town halls, the libraries, um, that these are all, there's this hierarchy of both building and spatial types. Um, that doesn't exist in the hypermodern city, the global city as it's, as it's developing. That the contemporary city um, represents a kind of amoral order or formal disorder. And um, what you see below is a, is a brilliant ad that uh, uh, appears occasionally in the Financial Times in which it's a the, the architectural word is it's a capriccio. It's a, it's an assemblage of buildings, you know, composed into a into a um, uh, an image. So these these are actually these are real buildings in the world, but they're all put in they're they're, they're all in one place, right? <laughs> it's world business in one place. We live in financial times, right? It's just it's such a fantastic icon. Um, uh, I like to juxtapose I like to juxtapose this with uh, with the Plan Voisin. Uh, and I like to juxtapose to those two the skyline of the Ghent altarpiece uh, in the register below. Um, so anyway, uh, this is also uh, well coupled with, I couldn't find the image. There's another image that comes out of Financial Times um, about this, which is um, uh, the caption. This, this is world business in one place. The other one is, uh, the caption is mergers and acquisitions. And it's a small shark being eaten by a larger shark being eaten by a larger shark being eaten by a larger shark by great big shark at the end. Um, they know what they're, oh, I'm sorry. So, uh, so modernism, uh, as I haven't talked about, but I, but I think I've alluded to, modernism uh, really presented itself, modernist architecture presented itself as a gospel. Uh, it, it presented itself as good news. Um, and it has now obviously failed um, uh, in, its, in its promises. Uh, but its original power derived from its uh, patinas of both science um, and moralism. And Nathan Glazer, this is really what basically Nathan Glazer is talking about in his 
in his book, uh, From a Cause to a Style. So this, again, these are, these are drawings by Le Corbusier, sort of uh, modernist uh, components, buildings that were you know, icons of the, of the anticipated utopia. And then these are the kinds of buildings that, we're, that, that we're, the architectural avant-garde is doing now. I could multiply examples of this um, ad infinitum. Um, incidentally, so on the bottom left um, is the addition to the Denver Art Museum by Daniel Liebeskind. Um, I don't know, it's now probably 15 years old. Um, on the right uh, is that same building under repair uh, in less than two years to fix a $60 million fix on the roof, right? Um, because uh, uh, durability doesn't matter uh, anymore in, in hypermodernist uh, architecture. And it didn't really matter that much in modernist architecture, but at least they were naive about it. They imagined that, that, that no, they imagined that modern materials would, uh, yeah, again, it's a method of construction. That is, it's the difference between a bearing wall building that where the enclosure of the building is also the structure of the building and buildings where the enclosure of the building is separated from the structure of the building. And in modern construction, the structure of the building is a frame and you attach a skin to it and they expand and contract in different ways and it, it makes modern buildings inherently less durable. Um, and the telltale sign, if you want to know if a building, even a brick building, is a traditional bearing wall building or a, a modern building on a frame, is look for expansion joints. The expansion joints will be vertical lines in the building that occur every 20 feet or so to handle the expansion and contraction uh, of, the, of the face of the building. So back to Le Corbusier. Uh, so, uh, so now we're getting to junk space and I'll stop. Um, so Le Corbusier imagined, again, this was the utopia um, this was Manhattan, you know, probably in the 1950s. You know, you can pick out the Empire State Building. Hiding behind there is the, is the Chrysler Building. But Manhattan developed in, in a way entirely uh, different. Because, again, the, the, modernist, the, the, the modernist movement was essentially, not essentially, but implicitly, it was utopian. It was implicitly socialist. It was implicitly uh, Marxist. But modernism was, was uh, co-opted by uh, global capitalism. Uh, and the buildings popped up in, in ways that, uh, not being under government control, but, but being under the control of, of uh, global capitalists, they, they popped up in a more random sort of way. And this is a book, uh, and I'm, I'm getting to junk space, because uh, I asked you to read um, uh, Rem Koolhaas's um, essay on uh, whatever happened to urbanism. And basically what he says, whatever happened to urbanism, is it, 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 basically he's saying modern life became so complex that we just had to punt urbanism. There's no urbanism. There's just architecture, and that and that you know even that image that you see of the you know from Financial Times of all those buildings, that's I mean that's their design. It's not anybody's architectural. It's not anybody's urban design. It's just an accumulation of buildings by people powerful enough to build experimental buildings, uh, and to design and 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 the and the designers who want to want to build experimental buildings. So um, Kulhas who is, I mean, he, he is a total Nietzschean. I mean, he's just, he, he's the anti-Aristotelian uh, urbanist. Um, but he's really brilliant. And, uh, and, and you might've gotten a sense of it, even uh, I asked you to read a one page of junk space, right? And then I sent you the whole essay, which is 15 more pages of a rant. It's just a total rant about what junk space is. And he, he, he's not, he's, he doesn't regret that. He's just being descriptive. Right. And um, so um, 
so he wrote this, he, he, he burst on the scene in uh, 1978 uh, in New York with this book called Delirious in New York, which he called a retrospective manifesto for Manhattan. And this was the cover, right? This is the cover, the, the, the RCA building, the, you know, uh, bursting through the door and finding the Chrysler building and the Empire State Building in Flagrante Delecto. Um, and, uh, and everybody looking in and, and so, and, and the, anyway. Um, but the, the text is brilliant. It's a great read. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a really great, fun read until you sort of realize what the civilizational implications um, of it are, which he wasn't advocating for. He was advocating for it in the sense that he was saying, this is inevitable. This is our condition. Let's, you know, let's, let's embrace it. Let's be bold. And it's, it's, a, it's a real abdication of responsibility, in my view, in the view of those of us who think that human beings um, are, are responsible, morally responsible creatures in, in whatever time we live in. Um, but but it, it, was a, it was an articulation of the idea of the city as hyper-modern and hyper-individualist. And he's saying that this, is, this was the secret story of Manhattan uh, uh, as, it, as it developed and burst on the scene uh, in, the, in the 20th century. And so um, uh, this is actually, this is an example of the kind of space that is, that, that is everywhere. I mean, I mean, it's like, this is not so bad. And in a certain sense, just this one image, it's an underground, you know, underground mall. It could be at an airport. It could be in a train station. It could be anywhere. We're all from, they're all over the world, right? I mean, and, and so this is a kind of benign image of junk space, except that it's everywhere and it's all alike. And, 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 and it's usually not as clean as this. It's not as tidy as this. It really is junk space. Uh, and of course, he takes the, the notion from space junk, all the debris, all the debris that's floating around uh, in the atmosphere. And, he, and, he's, and he's very clever. He's, he's, uh, he's, very, he's Nietzsche. <laughs> um, so, um, so here we are, uh, world business in one place, we live in financial times. So where, where we are now, um, and I'm, Katie, I'm, oh, I ran over. Did I? You know, I'm, this is it. So, um, so, so, you know, where are we now? Where, so um, I, I didn't show images of the Garden City or the, so I cut out a lot on this lecture. So I just, my, I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, a little section on the Garden City and the rise of the suburbs. The Garden City has yielded to automobile suburbs and sprawl, which I, I would like to characterize as the triumph of the private realm. Um, modernism has yielded hypermodernism, which I would con contend is the triumph of bureaucracy and of artistic individualism. So two sides of the same coin, actually, I, I want to argue. Suburbs and, and hypermodern urbanism are two sides of the same coin. And there's actually a link in that, to block that metaphor, um, uh, having to do with land use um, that I'll uh, talk about a little bit tomorrow. Um, but um, popular environmental, popular critiques of both post-50 suburbs and modernist cities have emerged. These critiques are environmental, economic, moral, and formal. Um, are they sufficient? Uh, I think not. I think a Catholic critique can illuminate even those critiques. Um, but these critiques are associated with groups like um, Smart Growth and the Congress for the New Organism, and more recently, uh, an organization called Strong Towns. Smart Growth and Smart Growth leans furthest to the left. It's 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 the most sort of proactively environmentalist uh, in a secular sort of sense of, of environmentalism. I, I don't think it's a coherent view of environmentalism. Um, the New Urbanists um, lean left, not as far left as Smart Growth. The Strong Towns folks actually. Uh, lean a little to the right. The, the, the head of it is a guy by the name of Chuck Marone, who's a 
actually he's, a, he's, an, he's an engineer and a planner who discovered his vocation at about age 45 or 50. Uh, he's, he's very eloquent and charismatic. He's a libertarian Catholic uh, and so leans right. But he's actually, his, the, I think the Catholicism and the, and the nature of his studies is pushing him a, a little, you know, back from, from libertarianism. The, the, together, they're sort of, it's an interesting combination of organizations. So, um, but here are some critiques of the reforms, of, of these reforms, you know. And, and that's the question of whether the, the, the so-called urban revival that is taking place in areas where they've been influential, um, is it just a hothouse flower? Is it just uh, a niche market? Is the urban revival really just a tool of the meritocracy? Because it, you, I asked you to read the Charter of the New Urbanism, which has a lot of you know um, very uh, um, astute analyses of the situation and uh, a, a relatively clear articulation of, of what they're attempting to do and what their ambitions are. And it's a, it's absolutely a moral agenda. Uh, I mean, they, they've taken the mantle on from the modernists. The moral agenda of the modernists uh, has has been passed. To the new urbanists, and in fact, and, and in maybe a way that's a little bit unhealthy, to the extent that uh, that there's an implication that the right set of formal, um, physical, formal circumstances will make people good. Right? I mean, we know that that's not true. We know that that's not true. But um, but nevertheless, there is a moral sensibility that exists uh, among all three of these uh, that that doesn't really exist among the hypermodernists. Um, but the question is, is this urban revival where this is taking, is it really just kind of a tool of the meritocracy, right? Because it, it's, it's been accompanied by, I mean, every place that the new urbanists work, you know, they, they say and they say truly, good design creates value. That's true. Um, creating value shuts a lot of people out. So almost, you know, without exception, any, any of the, the kind of newer places that they've designed uh, quickly become so valuable. And again, this goes back to land use issues and, and taxation issues that I'll talk about tomorrow. Um, but uh, but but so this uh, it's a lot of this work has been accompanied by gentrification and displacement, um, and then uh, also the creation of cities really as kinds of playgrounds for the oligarchy, um, and um, that's kind of where we are, um, and uh, yeah, so it'll be interesting to I'm going to talk a little bit more about where we might go. It won't be easy, and maybe maybe it's not where we should go, but I look forward to talking about that with you. So thank you. So and this is a great lecture. Thank you very much. And a lot of for the notions of the private and public realms. Um, and I think a lot of people like, for example, the strong towns that are not quite for public, they talk yeah. a lot about the semi-public realm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I noticed a lot of the slides you had had these front porches. So could you talk a little bit about the role of the semi-private, semi-public realm with regards to the so uh, there's a category. This, so the spaces that I talked about, I talked about um, centralized spaces and linear spaces. The space, the, the large category of spaces that I didn't talk about that I call transitional spaces. Uh, a, a front porch is an example of a transitional space. Um, a colonnade is an example of a transitional space. A stair, an urban stair, is an example of a transitional space. Um, it really it's the thing that sort of you know, mediates between one realm and the other. And so it's a, I, I mean, I would just say intellectually, it's sort of. It's sort of a physical analog um, to fitting into ideas of subsidiarity. So um, I know a lot of, I'm good friends with a lot of, I'm, I'm, I'm part of the Front Porch Republic. I, you know, I'm good friends with a lot of people at the Front Porch Republic. Um, I don't think that they do any more. I mean, it's, it's possible to overemphasize one, one thing. In fact, that, that's, that's, that's our modern temptation. 
One thing will solve it. When I talk tomorrow, if I get to it tomorrow, I'll talk about land value tax, don't let me suggest that it's the one thing that will save us because there's not one thing that will, will save us. But um, I mean, front porches are, are they're great things. They, you know, they, they, they front the street, they, you know, they help you get to know your neighbors, they, you know, they, they, they do a lot of good things. They're not salvific, but they're, they're, they're good things. Um, the, uh, there was one other point that I was, oh, I know. So it's that uh, somebody who had spent a lot of time in Bruges, Belgium, and I've spent a lot of time in Bruges, Belgium, made the point in response to some front porch Republic manifesto uh, uh, writing in it saying, you know, I've been in Bruges, it's really fantastic. There's not a single front porch in Bruges. <laughs> and that's true. Yeah. About five years ago, the mayor of Pittsburgh painted over a bunch of curbside parking spots with these really narrow bike lanes. Mm -hmm. um, and people reacted with, you know, very sure. like, um, and so with that, he seemed to be making a sort of moral suggestion that you know, biking is better than driving and also making a sort of priority of locals over visitors. So what's your sense of the place of uh, urban designers making those sorts of suggestions and priorities? Um, uh, the design of streets exclusively, if not primarily for automobiles, is, has been and is a disaster. Um, streets belong, they're public places, they, they should accommodate all kinds of modes of transportation. Uh, and, uh, and to be safe, they, they I mean, the way, that you, the, the way that you make streets safe is not by posting speed limits, it's by narrowing the street to the point where you feel uncomfortable uh, driving faster than the intended speed. It's, it's something that traffic engineers who understand this, um, it's called design speed. You know, um, and and so um, that that can be done with buildings. It can be done with you know curbs. It can be done. It can be done with potted plants. It can be done to some extent with paint. I mean, generally, if a, if a community is doing it with paint, it's because that's that's the the, the limits of their resources. But but it, it it's a huge difference. I mean, you you obviously you you need to accommodate cars um, in the street. Uh, most streets need to accommodate cars, but you 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 have to have a, a pedestrian friendly. I mean, I mean the image on the screen now. I mean, this, this is a good example of a of a street. It, does, it doesn't have bike lanes, right? But um, not all streets need bike lanes. But it so it would depend on how they did it too. You know, whether it was there's good good ways to you know to handle the bike lanes. I, I'm 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 entirely sympathetic to um, uh, well informed interventions of that nature, and whether they're done by city officials or whether they're done by guerrilla neighborhood groups. <laughs> uh, you laugh. I mean, this is what it's going to take, honestly. Yeah. So you talked about a few different typologies, the plaza, the um, street, the avenue. For an Aristotelian's mystic perspective, where does the idea of the skyline fit in? Because this is obviously a, a modern concept of, you know, you go to these places to get the picture mm -hmm. with the city name and the skyline in the background. And yeah. cities are defined by their skylines now. Is this something that we should stop thinking about or how, how should we think about that? So one of my little favorite images from the city of Bruges is a 12th century uh, depiction of, uh, of the skyline of the towers of Bruges called the Seven Wonders of Bruges. Um, it's the, no, I mean, cities, Urban form, architectural form, has that kind of iconic status. Um, so I think the problem, I mean, gosh, there's a really interesting essay 
about sort of what happened. People were concerned about what happened when in the 20s they started making high rises that were taller than churches, right? And they made them in a traditional architectural vocabulary and, uh, and they were quite beautiful um, and sort of you know, made their peace with them, right? I mean, you go, I mean, you go to Chicago and you see the, the Tribune Tower. Um, it's a lovely building, it's modeled after, it's taken from a, one of the towers of the French Cathedral. And it's a beautiful building, but it's just dwarfed now. I mean, it's just the momentum of modernity. This is kind of what Kuhlhaas was talking about, that the, the whole momentum of, of modernity and scale uh, is just more, 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 higher, higher. And uh, I, I forget who it was. It was Klein's Law, right? That, that you, if, something, if something can't continue, it will stop. Um, I keep thinking that we're closing in on that, but it could be tomorrow. It might not happen for a while. Um, it's a, the skyline is, is the sky, let's see, form in, is intrinsically, has an intrinsically aesthetic component. And I would even say, venture to say as an Aristotelian Thomist, that the telos of all of our artifacts, whatever other, whatever other utilitarian purposes, uh, you know, genuine, what's the word, just practical, uh, but 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 its foremost uh, tell us is, is beauty, and that, that's true. That's true of tall buildings.